life is a jungle, the jungle is hell. Hell, what the hell? There is hell. Life is a jungle. And that jungle is hell. What's good, my guy? Uh, I'm making it today, man. This is uh, two episodes straight, but we're not in the same studio, man. It feels a little awkward. <laughs> I know. Hey, the, the virtual thing is is one of them things that's just going to have to grow on me because I'm sure we're going to have to do this more often. Uh, but exactly. I don't like it. It, it wasn't in the virtual thing. I wanted to say I miss you, man. I miss you too, brother. I I, I, <laughs> I don't like it. I don't like it. And this is, this is a special episode because we got guests. And uh, yes. we got we got a uh, guest that not normally guests. <laughs> uh, I got baby Cammy with me right now, and uh, yep. she down here recording with and me. I have baby Shamari with me. So guys, if uh, there are some baby sounds, forgive us. Y'all know we new dads out here. We making it work, and we're gonna stick to our schedule. So we're doing it for y'all. We're doing it for the people, <laughs> and she gonna make some noises, and baby Shamari gonna make some noises, and you know what? Don't forgive us. Accept us for who we are. Fathers. Uh, you're right. Fathers. You're right. <laughs> we ain't doing nothing wrong. Active fathers. Active fathers. Hey, you know what? Uh, we're gonna we're gonna get rolling into this because I guess got a hard cut off today. So I'm just gonna tell you this right here. Siach is the degree to which a perfume lingers in the air. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, my brother, what's your siach of the day? I actually pulled out something nice today. I pulled out uh, something I said I wasn't gonna pull out till wintertime. It's called Atelier de Ors uh Lunefeline. It's one of my amber, vanilla, cinnamon, powder. Man, it smells really, really good. And then the special part about it, the bottle got gold flakes in it. So I'm really 24 karat podcast in the day. <laughs> Are you fancy, huh? <laughs> just, I ain't just, mad just at you. Just a little bit, man. What, what about you, man? What's your CI? Man, you know what, man? I was going to pick something good. I was going to just, just, just go in upstairs and like pick something real fire. But I couldn't. Because I just want to spend a shout out, a special shout out to my mama. So she was listening to the podcast and was like, you said you really love this particular mm. cologne. And she got it for me. She got the, I had the sample and she got the whole bottle for me. So I had to spread it on today. A Sun Song by Louis Vuitton. And the Seach, it's just, it's just, man, look, I got, I got a little jacket on right now. Cause it's a little cold downstairs. So the Seach is just coming straight up. Just booming in mm. my nose right now. Just boom, boom. Mm. So, man, that that's a banger to me, man. Real summary. I, I bet, man. You keeping it going, man. I'm, I'm going to have to come get a little, little bit of that. Yes, sir, <laughs> man. Hey, you know, come to camp, whatever you want, brother. You know. <laughs> but, man, let's let's get on to our guest of the day. Um, this woman here, I, I, you know, we're in these podcast groups, and um, they often have a day where you get to advertise if you're looking to be a guest on other people's shows. And she made a post about herself and I read her story and I just thought, wow, I, I have to have her on our podcast because as a new father, you know, we have our daughters. I'm not going to give too much away of her story, but we have our daughters and and 
I just looked at her story as an example for young women, you know, um, I, I could never imagine myself in, in, in some of the situations that she's been in. I can never imagine myself putting a woman in some of the situations that she's been in. But life happens to some people and some people survive, you know, and she's here to, to, to tell her story about how she survived uh, different encounters in life, how she's grown and some lessons that you guys can learn from it. Um, please give uh, this woman your full attention. Please show this woman some support. Uh, I've listened to her story a few times on other podcasts. I, so I'm telling you guys, like she's an amazing guest. And I'm so happy to have you, uh, Miss Letitia. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hello. Thank you for having me, guys. Uh, thank you Hello. for being here. <laughs> yes, no worries. So my name's Letitia. I'm from Bermuda. I'm currently living in England, where I am a business mindset coach, where I'm dedicated to helping women get their mind right so that they can see the success and fulfillment that they desire in their lives man there we go you you are also our first international guest you sure are okay we got a lot of yes. first coming hey look let me let me tell you let me tell you because we're gonna get into your story like asap i just want to tell you uh about how how profound your story is and how how inspiring how in all oh, our your story was so good that I stopped listening to the podcast you sent me that you was on because I want to hear the rest of it firsthand. I couldn't. <laughs> I feel like I feel like I was ruining. I feel like I was watching the movie before I was reading the book. <laughs> I couldn't stop. I, I couldn't stop listening. I, that was my thing. I was like, wait a second, what? And it was it was so crazy. I had I kept having to rewind. You know, you got the, the plus ten go back. I was like, hold up a second. You know what? You know I, what? I, hey, I know I didn't just see what you, I think I heard. You know what? <laughs> uh, uh, start us start us off, Letitia. Uh, yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about your background um, and 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 how you how you got to to where you are today. Sure. So, as I said, born and raised in Bermuda. At the age of seven, I was told by a family member that my birth was the reason my parents got a divorce, and mm -hmm. that was a defining moment in my life. And it's crazy to say yeah. that at seven. I had a defining moment, but that created a narrative for me that lasted 20 plus years. My, both of my parents remarried and both of the people that they married made it very known that they did not want anything to do with me. So I was stuck between two family units not really feeling like I had a place in either one. And that left me wanting attention, wanting love, wanting validation, because everything that I knew to be true before that point had kind of just blew up in my face. So as a child, someone looking for attention, you start acting out, you start doing things. Because any attention is good attention to you, whether or not you're getting attention from someone because you're doing something wrong or someone is validating you because you're doing something positive. And one of the narratives that I heard quite often was that I'm too loud, I'm too opinionated, I've got too much attitude, and I'm too smart for my own good. By the time I was about 
14, I was fully developed and I thought I was a grown woman. I really did. So I'm getting attention now from older men and that was exciting. Finally, someone saw me for me and that (laughs) began a world of trouble for me. So at 14, I met this guy that was 28 years old, excuse me, and he, I would say, was my knight in shining armor at the time. My relationship with my parents was really rough because I was a teenager and I thought I knew, I thought I knew what life was about. So they couldn't tell me a thing. My relationship with my mother was particularly particularly contentious because I was living with her and I really did not get along with her husband. So this man offered me a way out of that situation. My mom had two young kids at the time, like really young um, Irish twins. So her focus was on the children, which allowed me to get away with a lot more. Um, I was out of the house until 11, 12 o'clock at night. Um, I wouldn't come home on the weekend. And I think once my mom found out that I was with this guy, because in Bermuda, (laughs) it's a very small community and your neighbors know more about your business than you do. So she found out about this guy and she did a background check. And (laughs) she found out that every relationship that he had ended in restraining order. Dang. Hey, can I ask you a question? Can I ask you a question? How common is it in Bermuda at the time for uh, older men to date younger women? Because, you know, uh, I hear a lot of times in different, different, uh, different places, things are more common than they are other places. It's common. I, older men prey on younger women, um, young girls. I wasn't a woman. I was a girl. And while I was in a relationship with this guy, he wasn't the first older man that I had been with. Most of the men that I had dealt with in my teens were at least 10 years older than me. So it was very common. Um, it still goes on today. And people, I think what's interesting, I met the guy who took my virginity, right? Through a woman that was 24 years old. So she introduced me to this guy for me to have sex with. And so how old? How old was I? Yes, ma'am. Twelve. Wow. That's crazy. But, so, so I know it's, I'm sorry for interrupting. We're going to definitely let you rock, but I know it's common, but is it accepted? Because it, it's common here too. It's common it's down, it's common down South yeah. <laughs> more so than it is yeah. a lot of places, but it still mm-hmm. ain't legal it's not legal but i think the way the system set up I, when my mom found out about another guy she took me to the police station i told the police everything that happened but when it came down to pressing charges they needed my permission oh. and i said no oh so but that's crazy because they don't need your permission here yeah the, the state of press charges here but they didn't have evidence unless i gave it oh yeah that makes sense too. So, 
Yeah, so she found out about this guy. She she warned me. She told me, look, he's a dangerous guy. You got to stay away from him. And at 14, if I'm honest, I thought she was just cock blocking. I hadn't <laughs> seen that part you of said him. She was a cock blocking. <laughs> yeah, okay. she was a cock blocker. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. Straight up, I'm not listening to you. So I go on with this relationship and I'm spending a lot of time with the guy. He used to come pick me up from school. Like he knew my age. There was no way he didn't know. Did we have a discussion about how old I was? Never. But he knew that I was in high school because, you know, we were uniforms in Bermuda. So there's no way (laughs) out of that. (laughs) So the first time he put his hands on me, was right before I was 16. So I had been with him for a year and a half, a bit more. And he choked me. He thought I was messing with someone else and choked me. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, (laughs) my mama was right. This guy is crazy. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of stuff up his house and I packed everything that I had into a trash bag and I went on my merry way. Bye. I'm not about that life. I had enough sense at that age to know that that's not what a relationship should look like. So, so when he thought she was messing with someone else, I mean, did in his mind, did he assume it was another someone his age or was he jealous of a teenager? Someone It was that, a teenager. Oh. So this 28-year-old is actually jealous of a teenager, someone more appropriate for you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I go back home because, like I said, I was spending a lot of time with this guy. And I don't talk about it. I, I don't tell anybody about it because I had spent a year and a half defending him, you know, justifying why I'm in this relationship with somebody twice my age. And, you know, the worst thing for a teenager to do is admit that they're wrong. Like, I'm not telling anybody. No. (laughs) No one's going to know that they were right in this case. So I'm home more often. I'm fighting with my mom and her husband all the time. And I remember having a fight with my mom's husband one night. And I just, like, literally fed up. I'm just going to kill myself. And he called my mama into the kitchen he called my little sisters into the kitchen and pretty much mocked me oh you're gonna kill yourself we're gonna watch you that's awful so i picked up a handful of a leaf and i took it Mm. and then ran out of the house and i remember my mom coming after me very angry like why would you do that why would you take your life like why would you try to take your life and i'm angry too because you sat there and watched me take a handful of pills and didn't say a thing. So I go to the hospital, you know, I'm treated at the hospital and then I'm put under psychiatric care. Mm -hmm. So outpatient treatment, I'm going to see a psychiatrist twice a week. And I remember having a conversation with my father I had gone to live with him for a short period of time. And the narrative that I was told was that his wife didn't want to raise another child. So I got shipped back to my mom. 
And I remember being in a family meeting with the psychiatrist, my granny, my daddy, my mama, and expressing how that made me feel. And he got up and walked out. And I didn't speak to him again for years. He cut me off for speaking my truth about feeling alone in the situations that I was in. So life goes on. And now I'm about 17. I'm a very angry 17-year-old. I don't have a relationship with my father. I don't really have a relationship with my mama because of her husband. And we got into a fight one day, me and my mama. And I put my hands on her. And like, that's the worst thing you can do to an island mama. Like, I'm lucky she didn't kill me herself, right? But (laughs) that was the bottom line for her Mm -hmm. so a couple of days later I come home from school and I get a registered ladder so I think they call them certified ladders in the state um where I had to go pick up this ladder so I'm thinking this has got to be from my daddy like who else would send me something so official and I'm telling my mom about this and she was like oh I don't know (laughs) so I go pick up this ladder which is from my mother's lawyer telling me that I I am no longer allowed on her property. And if I return, they had the right to call the police. So So, essentially a restraining order against the the house. So so as you went to pick up the letter, that was basically your eviction. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) and she acted like she was none the wiser which actually really irritated me but hey so I'm a minor here with nowhere to go I don't have a relationship with my father so of course my father's family is gonna handle me like a long-handled spoon I put my hands on my mama so there's no way that I'm calling my mama's family right So I call the guy that had checked me and humbly asked if he would take me in. And of course he did. With glee, he was so excited to have me back. But immediately he let me know that I owed him. And I owed him big time. Because my family didn't even want me. And I'm all that he had. And I mean, it wasn't a lie, really. (laughs) It was the truth. I literally had been abandoned by my family. um, And I had to rely on this man to take care of me. I wasn't old enough to work at the time. I couldn't put a roof over my own head. So I was stuck in this situation. So the psychological abuse was real. And it's something that I believe because of everything that I had been through up until that point. The physical abuse was here and there, like a punch here, a slap here, nothing totally major. And it sounds crazy that I say that because there's no excuse for physical abuse, but it wasn't something like I felt like my life was in danger. That's what I was going to say. It's to me, just hearing that, like my I, my whole body just squirmed to hear you say, "Well, it wasn't major." It's like, ah, I'm sorry. You can keep going, but it got a whole lot worse. That's why, in in comparison, I think 
I would have taken what I got before I got married a hundred times over. At 19, I married him. I was in love. This was a person that saved me from my situation. And I believed that I owed him. My view of love at that point was unrealistic, but that's what it was in that moment, right? So at 19, I marry him. Shortly after that, I get a job in law enforcement. I was a customs officer. Being in law enforcement in such a small community and coming from a civilian point of view, like up until this time, I'm a civilian, right? Seeing the protect and serve from the other end look different to me. And I didn't respect the people that I was working with. They will gossip about calls that they went on, mock people, talk about people. So for me, I had to keep what was going on in my household very quiet because I did not want anybody to know what was going on with me. I didn't want my business on the street. So (laughs) I spent years hiding. When I got married, the abuse intensified because he believed that he earned me. That's, that's what he used to say. Like, yeah, my wife, you belong to me. There were nights that I was tortured. He used to barricade us in the house and keep me up and torture me. I was raped. I was sodomized. And I could not tell anybody. If I had 50 people in my life that I was supposed to during that time, two people knew what was going on and no one knew the entirety. Like I might say, oh my God, he kept me up last night and I, you know, I'm really stressed out, but I never told anybody exactly what was going on. There were nights where I was literally fighting for my life because he drank a lot. And when he drank, he got very aggressive. And one of the things he had a problem with Listen, I'm always with a mouthpiece. And I don't care if you're beating me with a two by four. I'm going to say what I'm going to say. You're going to knock my teeth out in the process. I'm going to still say what I'm going to say. You're not going to shut me up. And that was a problem for him. So, you know, I'm too mouthy. I've got too much attitude. I began to believe that I was the cause of my abuse because I couldn't just shut my mouth, right? There was a night where I had gotten my nails done, brand new acrylic. I thought it looked amazing and he didn't like it. And we got into a fight. He barricaded the house um, and told me that I'm not going anywhere. And I fought. Um, You know, I was a big girl. I'm much bigger than I am now. I used to almost be 400 pounds. But I fought this man to the point where the acrylic was literally, and my nails were literally ripped on to the cuticle. That night, I was scared because although we had fight, there wasn't ever blood, you know? So like this guy's drawing blood on me, like this is serious. And I remember getting out of a house that night because we used to have a sliding gas door for our front door and he used to barricade it with like a, a broom handle or something 
And I managed to get out of the house that night. I, all I had on was a tie-dye t-shirt and some socks. And I re- remember running to my, my, my aunt's house that lived about 10 minutes away, thinking that I would have shelter, like I can get away. And I got there and she was like, you got to call the police. Like, you know, you can't be dealing with that. Call the police so you can go get your stuff. When I got back to the house, he had rebarricaded the door. He had made a noose with an electrical cord and was acting like I had done something to him and he was now suicidal. So all of the attention was taken off of me and put on him to help him in this state that he was in. That night I stayed with a friend, but I went right back because how do you explain to somebody that you've been telling for years that I'm in an abusive relationship. You know, like I painted a pretty picture about this relationship. One of the things that he used to do to apologize there was to buy me Louis Vuitton. And that was a big thing to be in my early 20s with almost $20,000 worth of Louis Vuitton leather goods. I like had everything. And they meant the world to me because in this moment, I really didn't have any value aligned with myself. So what was valuable to me was these leather goods. Excuse me. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you think he did that um, because he actually felt sorry? Or do you think it was just another way to manipulate you to show you that this is what you could have as long as you play your role? Definitely manipulation. And that's the cycle of abuse. They the abusers manipulate you in ways and they know what your triggers are. He knew me well. He knew me since I was a child. You know what I mean? And he knew what would keep me in line. Did I see it as manipulation? No, I thought he was honestly apologetic. But now that I understand the cycle of abuse, it was all manipulation to keep me in place. Mm-hmm. So. There was a hurricane on the island that destroyed our house. And we went to live with someone else. And during that time, there was no abuse. Like, straight up abuse. He would torture me at night. Like, the things that he used to do was, like, throw alcohol on me and tell me that I can't get up. So if I get up, he's going to light a match. He's going to set me on fire. He used to use, like, war tactics. like drip ice cold water on my in my ears to keep me awake at night and I can't make any noise because we're living with someone else so I I endured a lot of torture while I lived with this person but the beatings per se were eliminated and I think I got slightly complacent during that time though I was working a lot of hours and I had a lot of time away from him And I was getting attention (laughs) from other men, like guys would talk to me. I never did anything outside of my marriage. I believed in the sanctity of marriage. Like cheating wasn't a thing for me. But if someone was going to show me the attention that I wanted, that I wasn't getting in my marriage, hell yeah, I'm taking it. And I remember one day I had come home from work and I couldn't find myself in. And I didn't remember if I had even used it because like we used to work 24 hour shifts and be busy. 
So did I even use my phone? I wasn't like overly concerned about it. And I remember one of my friends, the friend whose house that I went to that night that I called the police, she called me and she was telling me, you know, uh, I'm in an abusive relationship. I'm, I'm with this guy, this heroin addict. I don't know how to get out of this situation. And I was the go-to for relationship advice for my friends. Like everybody used to come to me because, you know, I had this long-term relationship with this older guy who married me. So I must be doing something right. And I remember, you know, telling her everything that she needed to hear. You're so much better than that. Don't let anybody, you know, degrade you, blah, 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 blah. And one of the things that I did was pick up a book that I was reading. Do, do, you, do you think that was, you were so well at doing that because you was really projecting how you wanted to take over your own life? Yes and no. I think I've always been on a person to help others, right? So I think that's just who I am naturally. Given the advice, I actually felt choked up giving it to her because I felt like a hypocrite. I, I didn't feel like I was projecting anything. I just felt like a hypocrite, if I'm honest. Yeah, and yeah. this one p- particular night, um, I had picked up the book by Yana Van Zandt called Until Today. It's a daily devotional, and I randomly opened the page. In this passage, Yonla was talking about people are in your life for a reason, a season, and a lifetime. And oftentimes our interpersonal relationships don't work because we're trying to keep someone in our life for a lifetime that was only meant to be there for a reason. And as I'm reading this tour, I felt like a sinner in church, yo. I'm like, (laughs) oh my gosh, she's talking to me. (laughs) And it's interesting how significant that was I needed to hear that in that moment because that night my husband came home extremely drunk he had my cell phone and in this in the cell phone was text messages and he was angry and I remember him coming home and just the look in his eye told me, this is going to be a bad night. I often tell people, like, after years of abuse, you kind of know whether or not it's just going to be a hit or a punch or hours of torture. And I saw a look in his eye that I had never seen. Like, He looked at me as if he hated me. And I went to the landline and I called my mother. Now, interestingly enough, we had a very contentious relationship. There were periods of time that I wasn't even speaking to her. But this night I called her and I said, listen, you got to come get me like right now. Like, come get me. I'm serious. He pulled the landline out of the wall. And he told me that night that the only way that I am leaving there is if I'm leaving in a body bag. Oh, wow. He picked up a knife and he barricaded us in the bedroom. So the bedroom that we were in had two doors. One, he pushed a wooden dresser in front of 
And the other one was blocked by, you know, this tall stackable like Tupperware containers, like the big one. Yeah. Um, it was in there. And the whole time I was in the room, it was almost like I was watching a movie. It was an auto body experience for me. I was literally fighting for my life. And I remember the knife coming towards me. Um, but I never ever processed pain. So there, I, I didn't actually realize that this man had stabbed me. In the commotion, however, his friend had come home and heard the chaos in the room and managed to get through the barricaded door that had the Tupperware containers in front of it. So when he burst in, I ran out and I ran into the living room and I fell on the couch. Still not processing that I had been stabbed, but in this moment, now I'm feeling the warmness of my blood running down my body. So I was stabbed in my arm. I was stabbed underneath my breast and I had defensive wounds on my hand. Right. But I, I still didn't feel pain. I just felt the warmness of my blood. Anyway, my husband came charging out and he straddled me while I was laying on the, while I was on the couch and tried to stab me again. And I, I say this jokingly now because I'm processing and I know that this is like a lot for people. It could be triggering, right. but it was almost like a matrix type of move. Like me swerving this, um, this knife and his friend came and pulled him off of me and literally pushed me out the door. It was raining that night. I didn't have much clothes on. I didn't have any shoes on and the house that we were living in didn't have grass. It was like torrential rain. And mud everywhere. And I remember standing outside the house like, what the hell am I supposed to do now? Like, it's one o'clock in the morning. I can't go knock on somebody's door. Like, did my mama hear me? Like, is she coming? Right. I don't know how long I was outside, but it wasn't very long. And my mom pulled up in her car. And when he realized that somebody was there for me, he started throwing all of my stuff out the window. So he's throwing my clothes, my shoes, like my laptop, whatever else was in there into the mud. So as I'm trying, I'm trying to pack my stuff into the car. My mama never got out the car. She saw the blood, like she went ballistic. In his chaos, he started throwing my Louis Vuittons out the window. So as soon as I saw them Louis, I was like, let me get my bag. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, uh, that's more hey, like, I mean, focus. She said, that was, <laughs> "Hey, for real though, look, she was saying, look, we out here. Like, I need my bags though. You out here stabbing yeah, me up, I but mean, I need them I bags. Got money, I can cash them in. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's valuable. Hey, for real though. <laughs> hey, that's when <laughs> I started packing up the Louis Vuittons and trying to hide it in my mama's car. Then he realized, because I know he didn't realize he threw them out. When he realized that he threw those Louis Vuittons out the window, he comes outside with the knife and starts unpacking my mother's car, looking for the bed. And in that moment, I'm bleeding. I'm not even real, like still not realizing that I'm 
truly heart in this situation. I'm ready to fight this man for these bags. Like, okay, we're done. You pulled a knife on me, we're done. But let me at least have these bags. Right? Not just not just pulled a knife, he didn't stab you. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't got it on, man. He was this is it. But in that moment, I didn't even realize. Right. You know what I mean? Like adrenaline is a serious thing. I'm you know what? I, everybody I know that's been stabbed said that they didn't know they were stabbed until after some time mm-hmm. had passed. I, I, I had a buddy of mine get stabbed up at a, at a club one night. Uh, he had just gotten into like an altercation with somebody and boom, boom. And, you know, they was fighting, just regular fighting. And when he got done, he looked down his clothes. He had been stabbed about five or six times. Didn't know nothing was going on. And whooped the man and everything. Yeah, adrenaline is serious, man. So I'm, I'm trying to fight this guy for the big. And my mama is like literally screaming. And I think that's what brought me to my senses. Like, wait a minute. Like, this is a dangerous situation. This guy could literally slip my throat in front of my mama and it will all be over. So I got in the car. The first thing my mama wanted to do was take me to the hospital. And I was like, no, not doing that. There will be a paper trail. I don't want anybody at my job to know what's happened. The one thing that I had done and I learned very, like, even before I had gotten in this relationship was if you're ever in a situation where you don't want to go to the police, report it to your doctor because then they, they have a paper trail. Mm. There was a murder in my country when I was very young that was significant. This man had killed his wife. And that was something, like, they had come around to talk about domestic abuse and that was something that I had been advised to do so that was something that I had been doing while I was married my doctor knew what was going on and every time I had an incident that left a mark I used to go to the doctor and he had this little form and he'll mark it down like where my injuries were so my thought process was let's go and stop this bleeding now that I realize that I've been stabbed Let's go stop the bleeding and I'll go to the doctor in the morning. It's only a couple of hours. Let me just go get some rest. So I go to my mama's house. I call the assistant collector of custom to let her know that there was a situation at my house. I no longer have any uniform. I can't come in until, you know, I get this stuff sorted out. After that, I'm trying to figure out, okay, what is next? What, what happens next? I wasn't even at my mama's house for two hours and she comes out into the kitchen and she was like, so have you decided what you're going to do? Because you can't stay here. Damn. Wow. So, That's I wild. That man. That. I was really, really angry. I'm kind of angry with you. And yeah. she packed me back into the car and took me to the closest police station. And from there, I was transported to a homeless shelter. So at this point, stayed, at this point, wait, what was your, what was your dad at? I didn't have a relationship with him at all. Oh, not at all. Okay. Gotcha. Not from that moment in the psychiatrist's office where he got up and walked out. Okay. Gotcha. He did find out about my stabbing though. Okay. And went to confront my husband. Um, but we still didn't have a relationship. Okay. He he contacted me and told me he'll pay for my divorce, um, but never did. So, <laughs> quick, quick question: by by confront, 
by confront. Did he whoop we, the we man? All on the same page here, or did he just go talk to him? Did he whoop the man? He went to the house the mm-hmm. next day. My husband still had on the clothes that he had on when he stabbed me, but there were a lot of guys in the house uh-huh. when he went there. Okay. So he said he said what he had to say, and he got back in the car because he knew that he was outnumbered. Yeah. He was smart in that decision. But at least he yeah. tried. At least he tried to go ahead and avenge you real fast. Yeah. I can't. I can't imagine. No, that's that's wild. Go ahead. So, go ahead. Oof. I'm in a homeless shelter now, trying to figure out what I do with my life now. The homeless shelter was um, aligned with like a women's resource center. So I was able to get a restraining order. I was able to start processing my divorce. Mm. But now that I'm newly single, what does that actually mean? Like I have been in this relationship. Uh, I'm I'm sorry. I, I, I think we kind of skipped forward. So now you have a restraining order. So when you went to the police station, you end up having to make the report. I never made a report when I went to the police station. Oh, so, okay. That's different. I think, I think I, you got to make a report to get a, a restraining I, order no, here. With the restraining order, there was a notification that I was in the police station, but I never told my story to any police. I only spoke to my lawyer about it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, yeah, so they transferred me to the homeless shelter, and that was basically my only dealings with the police during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so um, this is the first time in my life that I'm truly been alone. Mm-hmm. Everything that I had defined myself by, like my identity to this point was always aligned with an interpersonal relationship. So if I had to describe myself, I would have said I'm somebody's child or I'm somebody's wife. And mm-hmm. trying to figure out who I was after that was like hard because I was living with a lot of shame. I was living with guilt. Believe it or not, I felt guilty about ending my relationship it's very hard to explain but that was something that I held on to for a very long time um I felt like a failure mm-hmm. if I'm honest yeah I mean that happens a lot man with people who manipulated and and and, and tricked in, in a certain situations you are you are uh you kind of get that that complex about yourself man and you just mm-hmm. feel like you just you know, even though even though that person has done so much wrong to you, it's almost like a Stockholm type thing is what they call it. Yes. Right? So it's almost yeah. like, you know, he's doing you wrong. But at the same time, it's like he didn't told you so so many times that, you know, he was your savior. He he did this for you. He did that for you. And he's like, dang, well, he did kind of do some stuff for me and he got me out of this situation that I didn't like. And but, yeah, I get you. So it, it, it mm-hmm. I understand what you where you're coming from. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And so for me, once I was able to get my apartment, I never wanted to be there at, alone, not especially not at night. So I started drinking. And when I say drinking, <laughs> I'm not talking about wine or wine coolers or some little rum. I was drinking bottles of scotch. And I, I got to a point where I was literally carrying around a flask with me in my purse, everywhere I went. If I went to a club, I had a flask in my bra 
to top up the drinks that I got from the bar, right? Yeah. And that became my life for a long time. Just mm-hmm. drinking, working, drinking, working, drinking. I just never wanted to be alone with my thoughts and my my feelings and all of this toxicity that was going on in my life. You know, I thought that walking away would just magically change things and it, it didn't it didn't happen. I think it actually got worse after my divorce because now I'm doing all of these things and it's sabotage like it's self-sabotage I don't have anybody else to blame the stuff that is going on with me is all self uh you know yeah self-given I'm I'm doing it to myself that period of time I was very promiscuous I was seeing married men and doing a whole lot of nonsense and I got kind of tired of it I got to a point where one day I had gone out with a friend and we had gone to this hotel bar. And I think I realized then, like, this is bad. I sat down to the bar that day and the guy opened the bottle of shivers. There was no one else there that was drinking shivers. And in three hours, that bottle was gone and I had taken the knuckle for another one. And I realized then, like, why am I drinking like this? I don't like being drunk. And I hate the taste of scotch. Like, why am I even drinking it? That's when I realized, like, something had to change. Like, this is just going to end up being (laughs) disastrous. So I decided that I wanted to go back to university because I had gone off for a couple of months and I had come back to Bermuda. I wanted to go back to university and... I did. I, I, I moved to Atlanta. I went to Georgia State. I got a full scholarship and I was focused on getting my degree. And, and how old I, are you? I'm sorry. 24 okay. ish. So, so I, I'll say this right here. Uh, all throughout this whole process, you are a smart woman. Yeah. So I just want I just want to put that out there to 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 people who say like only you, you got to be done to let that type of stuff happen to you. Man, this stuff can happen to anybody in any capacity. Uh, I've seen I've seen it myself. Not the actual mm-hmm. abuse, but I, I've seen women who are who are in, the, in these situations who not who not dumb. You know, uh, it it don't take a dummy to to get manipulated. You be as smart as smart as you want to be. You know what I'm saying? So. So uh, don't look down on yourself. If you happen to find yourself in this type of situation, uh, you can you can find your way out of it. And you're not Absolutely. dumb. I, I just want to let, let you know, if you listen to this and anything like this is ever happening to you, still happening to you, uh, might happen to you in the future, you're not dumb at all. It, it happens. Absolutely. Yeah, so I am focused on getting my degree doing amazing and then I randomly meet this guy and it was something about him that made him more than just like a conquest (laughs) and I I say that and laugh because that's essentially what men were for me at that time (laughs) okay and that sounds like some guy talk there yeah, little, little conquest, that, that's where little I was. Came I was a man eater during those <laughs> days. <laughs> okay, I got you. Come on, <laughs> Hall of Notes. You familiar with Hall of Notes? I know, right? She's a man. <laughs> hey. 
Okay, go ahead, man eater. Yeah, so I, like I fell hard for this guy, right? And he was a DJ. So he admitted to me that on Friday nights he snorts coke. And okay, I knew people in Bermuda snort coke to go drive a taxi all night. Like, okay, it is what it is. But I was very naive. I had no understanding of addiction because I had never been around any of that other than somebody smoking a spliff or a blunt. Like I had never been around drugs other than seizing them in my law enforcement. Right, days, right. right. Hey, can you tell me what the spliff is real quick? A, a weed rolled in paper. Okay, a spliff. Okay, I'm going to have to start using that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, full hard and fast. End up moving in with him after about three months because the relationship with my roommate at the time was like awful. So I was kind of running away from that toxicity. Moving in with him, and that's when I realized he had a problem. Like he literally snorted all day long. Well, not all day, all night long, slap all day. And because I was so naive about addiction, I enabled him. So like I said before, I had a full scholarship that mm. allowed me to actually have money in my pocket. Mm. It paid for my rent, it paid for my food, it paid for everything. But after moving in with him, I was broke. Because he would tell me, you know, I'm going to be so sick if I wake up in the morning and I ain't got nothing to snort. And me thinking I'm saving them from being sick. <laughs> I go buy them an eight bowl, right? Here you go, here you go, baby. Some more Coke. Yeah, <laughs> like I really didn't have a clue. I'm being honest. But I called on after a while because I spent one Christmas in absolute darkness because we had no light. Renaissance had come and take his bed. So I was sleeping on the floor, right? So like now I'm realizing, okay, this is a lot worse than I ever gave it credit for and I need to get out of this. Uh But I'm knee deep in it. I'm talked about this relationship. And finally, I'm not in an abusive relationship. You know, like this guy's great. Who am I telling that he's snorting all of my money? Snorting your money. Just got your money just all up his nose. That's wild. So So you start having flashbacks at this moment? Did you start having Pardon? flash? Did you start having like flashbacks to your previous relationship? Then maybe no. Okay, because he didn't really treat me bad. Aww. He just was. He used to like literally just go off into his little studio and play music all day. So it was like, okay, whatever. But when I ran out of money, I had to go back home and work. So I went home for a couple of months. He was living in the apartment that my money had paid for because, my, you know, I used to get my money at the beginning of the year. The apartment was paid for for a substantial amount of time. And I decided, you know what? I've been here for a couple of months. Let me go and surprise him. So I show up. And that's when I met his wife. Damn. Oh, shit. In, in your apartment. In my apartment, that my oh my was goodness, God damn! That look, that look. All right, I'm glad I ain't listened to this before because that was a genuine reaction. <laughs> oh my Jesus! Yeah. Uh, 
there was no indication to me that there was another woman in his life. We had been together for three years. I had spent Easter's, Thanksgiving's, Christmases with his family. And there was no indication to me that he was you hear that, baby? in another relationship. So How long was he married? Years. He had been married for a very long time. So now I got questions. And when I look back at it, it was probably his drug use that separated him. Um, but yeah, he had been married for years. So let me ask you this. Was he married and just separated or was he like actively involved with this woman and actively involved with you? How, how I never work? got the answers to this question. Okay. Because I had a lot. I wanted to even question his mama because mm. how you let me sit up at your... Like, my mama met your mama. Like, how you let us so the sit mama, up at your table The mama was, an enabler. was still married? Wow. I was angry about that. But I finished my degree. I had a semester left. And I moved back to Bermuda. So it is so what it is, it, right? Exit. So you were able to exit that relationship? Immediately. Mm. Okay. Immediately. That's, I wanted to ask it anyway. Like, I mean, come on. Like, you, you're draining <laughs> me of everything I had. I wanted to ask the plan. So this was, like, convenient, okay? I was a part, but mm-hmm. no, his code problem is her problem, not mine. Gotcha. So I moved back to Bermuda. And I focused on my career. I became a catastrophe modeler in a commercial insurance company. And I spent six to eight months really just focusing on me. And then I started getting lonely. And I remember (laughs) doing like this manifestation exercise about the next relationship that I wanted to be in. And there were like 45 criterias about this man that I needed to bring into my life. About a week later, I meet this guy. And mentally I'm doing the checks like, okay, he cooks, he cleans, he did it, you know, the D game's good, but he wasn't the height requirement. And that was the only problem. Uh-oh. Mail you out. You out, Mail. <laughs> he said, "What's your what's your height requirement?" If <laughs> six four, because I'm five ten. Jesus, I'm so, out like, too. That's looking for like a pink elephant, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I had to give in. <laughs> I mean, if it was anything, it could be the height. Okay. Okay. So I fall real fast for this guy, and. Mm-hmm. We moved in very quickly, like Mm -hmm. six weeks. We had an apartment together. But for the first time in my life, I was entering a serious relationship with somebody, not from a place of need. So like I, my husband, I needed somewhere to go. My, the, the, the guy that I was with in Atlanta, I needed an escape, but I was in a really good place in my life. And, um, Yeah, I felt really good. The first year of this relationship was absolute bliss. Like, I felt like it was a movie. Everything that I wanted from this guy, he was so attentive. He was all in, right? We had had a discussion very briefly that he had used crack at one point in time in his life. My goodness. And it wasn't something... 
that even bothered me because it wasn't he wasn't an active user right but then one of his family members died and I saw a change with him the day they buried that person like I knew something was off and I remember asking him over and over and over because like I'm just come out of this relationship with an addict like you can't really hide anything from me now because I know what I'm looking for and I remember saying to him are you using he said no I said okay because if you are I'm out like I'm not dealing with that I probably shouldn't have said that because <laughs> that just made him lie to me made him hide it yeah a little better but I knew I absolutely like there was no doubt in my mind that he was using he became very aggressive he stopped coming home you know and their money started going missing so I gave him a chance I was like listen if you go get help I'll support you through that but if you continue doing what you're gonna like what you're doing I, I can't stay here um he didn't listen and I remember packing up the house and leaving I disappeared I like bye anyway <laughs> I loved him and I wanted to get him help because he had gave me an indication that that's what he wanted he wanted help so I actively started looking for rehab centers I made what money so if I needed to pay for it it was what it was um and in that process, I met this woman who was a life coach. She was also a drug and alcohol counselor. So she said to me, she's like, look, I don't normally do this, but there's something about you. And I see that you are broken. And I want to help you. And I was like, girl, I'm not the broken one. <laughs> I'm not the one that needs help. You know what I mean? Like, it's not me. But I <laughs> took her card. I took her card. Grace, gracefully took her card several weeks after that the boyfriend called me and he said listen I need you to go pick up something from my job he was a a trained chef a professional chef and he used to cater on weekends right so he tells me to go pick up this package from his job and I didn't think anything of it sounds legit huh Sounds legit. It's legit. I've done it before. I knew the people on his job. Like, I'm going here saying, hey, how you doing? No, no, don't sound legit to me. (laughs) And I'm surrounded by security. Like, instantly. Like, wait a minute, what's going on? So then they began to tell me that the bag is full of stolen meat because his job had caught on to him stealing meat. He had been doing it for a while. They had put a camera in the freezer. So they call him red-handed, but they just couldn't figure out how he was getting it out of the building. And you today he was, was a... the day that I'm taking it out of the building for him. Uh, so I'm like, here you go. Oh, I don't know. Nothing about that. He was a meat mule. <laughs> I was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking there's going to be drugs in the bag. That's a whole different thing. He, he got steaks yeah, and shit. Meat. Mm-hmm. meat and Bermuda is expensive, you. So. Oh, okay. Okay. So that makes <laughs> sense then. Yeah, so So was he still in it? Was he still in it and selling it or, or what he was, was he? selling it? Okay. Stealing mm-hmm. it, selling the meat, got you. Buying crap. I'm I'm not even gonna so 
I hate it to sound offensive, but that sounds like crackhead behavior. That is crackhead behavior. That's definitely. You know, I'm gonna cool say I, I know what a crackhead when I see one. Yeah, <laughs> he's stealing meat. I got this meat. <laughs> got, hey, you know, hey, I'm look, like hey, look. For you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, hey, we used to be on the uh, so I used to live in Chicago, and you'd be on on the train and stuff, and people would come through and sell the most random stuff, and amongst that was meat. Niggas used to sell mm-hmm. steaks and shit on on the train. And you can buy you a steak while you going home for the low low. That's wild. <laughs> so yeah, um, he got arrested. He got charged. I didn't think any more of it until about a couple of weeks later. I'm at work, and the receptionist called me and it's like, "Latisha, the police are here to see." You. I'm like, "To see me?" So I was like, okay, tell them meet me in the lobby because I knew something was up. And as soon as I got to the lobby, they were like, you are under arrest for handling stolen goods. Like, are you serious? Arrested on my job. And that's all I could think about. Oh my God, all of these cameras, I'm not going to get away with this. Like somebody's going to find out. So anyway, go to jail. And I called my mother. So I was like, listen, I need you to get me a lawyer. Um, I'll explain everything later. That was not good enough. But she brought herself down to the jail. And I remember being called out saying that somebody's here to see you. So I go and I'm sitting behind this glass and my mama's there. She's bawling and like sitting there talking to her on the phone. And she says to me, why do you love everybody else more than you love yourself? Deep. That was like a Mike Tyson body blow. Like Mm -hmm. I'd never been hit with reality like that before in my life, but it was something that I needed to hear. And I went back to my cell that day and sat there and thought about all of the decisions that I had made that landed me here in this jail, in this moment. And I realized then that although my actions weren't the reason why I was arrested, my decisions were. And if I don't change the way that I'm deciding to do things in my life, then I'm going to be in jail for real, for real. Because, you know, this is not a joke. I could lose my job over this nonsense. Like, I was never charged. Like, it was literally a ploy to get information about the boyfriend. But when I left the jail, I called that kid and I was like, look, I'm ready. <laughs> Something's going to change. Like if I <laughs> knew anything, I knew that nothing changes unless something changes. And I was ready to make a change. So I started working with this amazing coach. And one of the things that she taught me real early was my narrative was why I was where I was. I had resigned to the fact that I was a victim life was happening to me you know I didn't have any control over anything that was happening and that in itself was making me powerless she also helped me to see that all of my experiences made me a survivor but being a survivor although it's glorified you know I'm a survivor (laughs) that's not the final destination (laughs) And so many of us get stuck in survival mode that we don't even realize that that is where we are, right? 
in survival yeah. mode, you only really operate from one or two places, fight or flight, which is a constant state of stress. So mm. working with the coach allowed me to heal. It allowed me to heal those narratives that I had been carrying pretty much since I was seven, that I wasn't enough, I wasn't enough for anybody, but I was still too much for everybody. That my, mm-hmm. I learned to validate myself rather than seeking all of this external validation, which had me in so many toxic situations, you know, year on, year out. My healing allowed me to move from being a survivor to being a driver. And that was something that I was grateful for. So working with the coach, I started setting boundaries in my life. I set a boundary with the boyfriend. I was like, listen, if you don't get yourself together, we're done. Mm -hmm. If you get yourself together, I'll support you. But then I decided, you know, I need to leave this community like I am constantly getting sucked into this vortex of toxicity because that's what's around me all the time so I decided to pack my bags and move to England I moved to England for two reasons my boyfriend was in rehab um, and then I wanted an opportunity to press reset in my career um Like I said earlier, I'm not one that shuts my mouth. So I came into the corporate world with a big bad chip on my shoulder and you couldn't tell me a damn thing, okay? And that created a reputation for me that I Mm -hmm. knew that if I didn't leave Bermuda, I would never excel. And I'm really intelligent. (laughs) So I'm not a person that settles for mediocrity in... Mm -hmm intellectual challenges like I like to be challenged full on so moving to England was an opportunity to press reset and restart and that's what I did I came out here and I really focused on my career in four years no sorry two years I was I was a manager you know I I I took a job as a manager I was working in the oldest insurance institute in the world, institution in the world. And that was a big thing for me. But one thing I realized quite early on as a black foreign woman in an predominantly male, white male dominated industry, I didn't get my props. As, as a person who as is usual. opinionated, as a person who's not afraid to speak my truth in a country that is built on passive aggressiveness, I stood out like a sore thumb and I wasn't accepted. When it came to my job, you couldn't tell me a damn thing if I knew what I was doing was right. And if I was a white man... I would have been respected for that. Speak on. But as a black woman, I was called aggressive. I was called intimidating. I was called scary. I used to go into meetings and my manager give a disclaimer to people. She used to work in law enforcement. That's why she's rough around the edges before Mm. we even start the meeting. And although it's like initially you kind of just laugh it off, 
it began to trigger me. It made me very angry that I built teams, not just one, but two teams for this company by myself. I was a department of one. Mm. I wasn't allowed to make decisions, but I was expected to clean up the maths. And I had been calling my job a plantation for a very long time. But that role that I was in was the epitome of a plantation to me. Mm. I was doing all the work. And the white man was getting all the money <laughs> and getting all the praise. And the day I gave birth to my second child, because I had two babies back to back, I received an email on my personal email account acknowledging the birth of my child, but then continuing on to ask me about work. And when I say that was like the biggest F you that I could ever receive, that was the moment when I realized it's time to get off this plantation. So I spent a couple of months like, you know, what am I going to do? Like, how am I going to make money? Because I was making like really good money. And the reason why I stayed was because of the money compared to what I could be making in this country. And I was reminded of the transformation in my life that I received from coaching. Like that coach changed my life. And I decided to get certified as a coach. My goal was to, you know, make enough money. So I had enough for my children's school fees because I wanted to send them to private school and make enough money. So I had enough expenses for two and a half years. And then I'll quit my job. And I went mm. back. And how old were you at this point? This was last year, the thirty-seven. Now, I, I just want to keep. I, I just, yeah, I'm sorry for asking. I didn't know it was that that recent, but I just want to keep because I, I keep hearing some people trying say, to keep that timeline. Yeah, it's, it's too late, and it's just you made so many changes at different stages of your life. So I'm, I'm sorry. You can continue. Yeah, no worries. So I'm like in thirty-six, thirty-seven now, and um, yeah. So I started my business. I started meeting some amazing people. My clients were doing amazing. And then I went back to work because I, I started my business while I was on maternity leave. Maternity leave out here is up to 12 months. So time out. Time out. Uh, <laughs> can, can, after we get done with this episode, can we forward this to the United States government? Uh, <laughs> because she said up to 12 months. Up to 12 months. Man, my man. God. Yes, there been three years I was out of work for 18 months. I would be popping our babies. <laughs> <laughs> but I went back to work. And when I went back the second time, I, I had a chip on my shoulder because of that email that I received hours after giving birth. But I also had a real big chip because essentially none of my work had been done, which was the same thing that happened when I went back the first time and I spent my entire second pregnancy stressed out going back and forth to the hospital because of my blood pressure. So I really felt disrespected when I got back. Like you don't like, you don't even care about me. And then I get back to 
it was like Groundhog's Day to the first scenario that I had been in where I spent months cleaning up the mask and them being ignored for months. So I'm telling my boys, look, we need to do this now. Like we need to address this now before it gets bad. He waits until the shit hits the fan and then I'm left to clean up the mess again. And that angered me. And right after that, um, I went into a call with an outsourcing company and the man on the call was calling me a little girl. He was very disrespectful, like cursing at me and there is any so much professionalism <laughs> that I am going to dish out to you when you're being disrespectful. And I put this man in his place in a way that probably nobody saw coming, but it is what it is. Hey, time out one second. <laughs> Gotta give them claps right there. Cause uh, yeah, put him in his place. Can I ask you a question? Had it done? Cause I know earlier in, in, in the podcast, you, you said something and, and it's kind of coming up again is how unfairly people judge black women. You said earlier when you was, I, don't, I forget what age you say, you said like 13 to 14, where they would tell you that you, you, you was too loud. You was too aggressive. And, and all these other uh, adjectives that they, that they unfairly place on black women. You know what I mean? I think everybody acts like this. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it can be a number of people, but they, they automatically just say, oh, because she black and she loud, that oh, she's just aggressive. It's like, no, I'm trying I'm the to angry I'm, black woman that everybody's angry, afraid of. Angry black woman is, is a show that, that the, the world loves to watch. And it ain't really yeah. a show because shit. <laughs> you just you just stating your opinion. Stating my opinion that nobody wants to hear because right. I am supposed to have a subservient rule. Exactly. I'm not a, I'm not assuming that shit at all. I used to go into meetings and be expected to pull the drinks, but I'm not drinking today. So you pull your own drink. There you, you know go. what I mean? Like that microaggression. And it's interesting that you say that. That's one of the reasons why I focus on black women in my business, because we're not allowed to have a real human experience without being labeled. You know, we're expected to be strong, but when we exhibit strength, we're threat. We're expected to just let things roll off our back, but when we speak up, we're aggressive. So yeah, it's it's a whole lot of things that go on with that. And in that moment, I was so angry. I got off the phone call. I was in tears, and not because I was upset, because I wanted to be in the meeting with that man and end my job by punching him in his face. Like that's how angry I was. <laughs> and I remember going downstairs to my husband, who by the way is in recovery nine years now hey You're hey time out hey time, time out one I second one more time <laughs> i like i like those recovery stories man i'll share with you that uh my mom uh has been clean for i don't even know how long now because it's been so long and uh i i got a real soft spot in my heart for for that type of thing so hey shout out to your husband who's been clean for six years and yeah Cameron, tell him how, how proud of you Yes, it's, it's a big thing because I know that it's a daily battle for addicts. And now I now know a lot more about addiction. And my heart is actually open more, you know, understanding the nature of that disease. So, um, yeah, I went, I went downstairs in an absolute rage. And my husband's like, why are you putting up with this shit? Like, if that was me, <laughs> if that was me, you, you'd be out the door. So why are you still there? 
And I decided, you know what? I'm going to take a gamble on me. I'm going to walk away from my 14-year career to step into the elements of me that has made so many uncomfortable. I realized in that moment that I'm loud because I have something to say for those who do not have the opportunity to say it themselves. I am opinionated because I am not afraid to have the difficult conversations that people shy away from. And I'm too small for my own good so that I can show up for the women that I serve today and provide them the transformation that they desire in their lives. So I have now taken the elements of me that make other people uncomfortable and I'm, I'm making money from it. And I am grateful for everything that I have been through to date. You know, people often ask me, is there anything that I regret? Is there anything that I will go back and change? And at one point in time, I had a laundry list. But today, I am grateful for every bit of hurt and pain that I have been through. Because all of that has made me a powerful coach. All of that has allowed me to step into my purpose. I truly believe that every one of us are here to make an impact. And it's up to us to be able to turn our mess into a message, turn our task into a testimony so that we can use our story to inspire others. And the reason why a lot of us don't make an impact is because we got stuck in survival mode. And I want to be able to help women change their narrative so that they can move from survivor to thriver, just like me, and make, start making an impact in the world. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, I, I do want to have a, I, I got a quick question about uh, something that I noticed, and uh, I just want to get your take on it. Um, you know, I, I knew somebody that was going through abuse and, you know, we did ask those types of questions. Why didn't you say anything? They was too ashamed. And, you know, something you said earlier was that, you know, I praise this person and now I'm going through this. I'm ashamed. you know, you didn't want to report it because you didn't want your job to know you was, you was ashamed. Like how, how big would you say that, that self-shame, you know, is, is what, keep some people in that cycle of abuse it's huge <laughs> the way abuse works it, it breaks you down at a psychological level and that shame that i carried impacted me for years i mean years even after the abuse ended mm-hmm. So that's why I say it's so important to challenge our narratives because I had convinced myself that I was the cause of the abuse. I had convinced myself that I almost deserved it because of what else was going on in my life. So it it is a big thing. And, you know, from someone on the outside, we all want to help. You know, we want to help people see their worth. But people are not going to leave their situations until they're in MS life and death situations sometimes, or they're ready to see a different narrative. And shifting your narrative is a lot harder than it seems. It's not as easy as just saying, oh, today I'm going to decide something different. There's a lot of 
When you're in abuse, that becomes your norm, right? We are psychologically wired to stay within our comfort zone. So even though I knew that the abuse was not right for me, that had become my comfort zone. And my brain subconsciously used to keep me there. It used to tell me, if you leave now, how are you going to support yourself? Who's going to take care of you? Who's going to who's gonna want a girl that got married at 19? That's, that's some of the things that used to go through my mind because subconsciously my brain is trying to keep me in that comfort zone, even though it was unsafe for me. Gotcha. Um, I think I just got two more questions. I'm going to, we can finish it out. Um, can, you know, Darius spoke to it earlier about, um, about this can happen to anybody and just something else that keep people in that cycle of abuse is what they view love as. And you, I don't know if you can explain it, but earlier you spoke to like your view of love during your first marriage was unrealistic. Can you kind of speak a little bit deeper into that? In relationship, when we are broken, when we are operating from a vulnerable place, we are like a wounded turtle in an ocean. Mm -hmm. one drop of blood our vulnerability attract the apex predators right when we are in that space where we're not truly confident in who we are and what we bring to the table we often look for someone to complete us and that is not what relationships are about I didn't understand that until I got to the other side of that. Relationships are about finding someone that complements you. But when we're in that vulnerable space, we're looking for completion. And the completion comes from within. Learning to love and accept ourselves is what is most important. And it sounds so cliche. You can't love somebody until you love yourself. But it's true. Because until you get unconditional love from within, you literally doesn't, don't know what that looks like on the outside, like from the outside. So you settle um, for anything and it, it comes in disguised as love, but that's just your vulnerability sh shining a light on something that really is just, you know, a dressed up piece of shit. <laughs> um. So earlier, I, I, I noticed because I listened to the other podcast, but earlier you kind of mentioned it a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, the friend that you and your first husband was living with, whenever your first husband was stabbing you, he pushed you out the house. Mm -hmm. And something that you said on the other podcast was that that friend was trying to convince you not to call the police. Yeah. But can you speak to abusers and their enablers and protectors? I wouldn't say in that moment he was protecting my husband. He was protecting himself. There was other things going on in the household that would have ah. blown <laughs> up shit. Gotcha. <laughs> please come. Yeah, that, that makes a yeah, whole lot of yeah, sense. Yeah, you may die, but I'm trying to. <laughs> I'm trying to, yeah. I'm, I'm trying not, not, trying I'm trying to, not to go to jail neither, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's uh, one, dope. One, one more and I'm done, because I, I think this is very important. So at seven years old, someone told you, you caused a divorce. You know, Marvel got this TV series called What If, you know, what, 
what family member, well, not, I'm not gonna, I don't know if it's family or not. Who told you you caused a divorce and how do you just think your life might've been different if at seven years old, that person didn't say something so traumatic to you? This is the first time I've admitted this, but the person who told me was my father. I found out years later that he was a narcissist and I now have no relationship with him because 30 years later, he's still carrying that same narrative, right? But looking back at it, because I had so much admiration for him, I blame Mm -hmm. my mother, right? Mm -hmm. Had I not been told that I think the resentment towards my mother would not have existed. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think life would have been a lot different when I was in my daughter's, I had a conversation with my mother about Mm -hmm. it It was the first time I had admitted that that's what was told to me. Mm -hmm. And she says she wishes that I would have spoken to her about it when I was seven, Mm -hmm. um, because she would have done her best to explain it to me differently. But now understanding the nature of narcissism, Mm -hmm. hey. Let him have his narrative. That will keep him happy until he dies. Yeah, that's him. But just this is my last little piece, and I'm out. Mm-hmm. Um, he said yeah, that eight, eight him, pieces but, ago. Know, I, I know, I know. I just want to, you know, I got my daughter, man. It's here home because I just think about all the things that I want to tell her and I want to teach her. And we don't think about the things that we say that may leave those types of scars. You know, like, like you, you said that that, that, phrase quote sentence completely changed the trajectory of your life you know so just just be mindful for the people that's listening of what you say to your children and what you say to people in general um thank you thank you for coming out thank you for sharing your story thank you for being patient with our daughters oh i know you know i'm not watching that at all at all <laughs> right because you see we we didn't <laughs> we didn't fan if my babies husband and... <laughs> was, was in him they would have been in her pulling on everything okay so not watching it i love to see this i salute uh, both of you okay i love it yeah thank, thank you thank, thank you so much uh uh, the only thing I wanted to say was that whole seven-year-old thing too, man. They be mindful of what you say to your kids, how you say to your kids, and and the type of influence that you have on. It's seven years old. Seven. <laughs> seven years old. I mean, I don't remember much from the time I was seven. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, I just say, man, you just got to be mindful of man how you how you raising your kids and and the type of environments, and you gotta maybe got maybe we gotta love our little black girls, man. Just. So much, so much more. And it's all right. I know it's kind of, it's kind of uh, uh, like saying that. I ain't, I'm not saying don't look after your black boys, but I love black girls, man. Black women are the most disrespected beings in the whole world. I used to say United States, but <laughs> clearly we got Bermuda and she in the UK now. And I don't know, black girls living in China, Japan, wherever they at. Black women, the most disrespected people in all of the world. And we just got to make sure that, that we look out for them, man, when we can, however we can, you know what I'm saying? And I appreciate you sharing your story with us. Uh, I almost kind of want to release this today because <laughs> I, I don't want to sit, I don't want to sit on it uh, because I, I feel like this is such an inspiring story and it, this could, this could, man, this could have somebody else, give somebody else the confidence to lead that person to, to, uh, 
to to jump out there and, and change their career trajectory, to, to just speak up for themselves, to just, man, do wonders for themselves. I feel like we shouldn't sit on this episode. I feel like people need to, people need to, I'm glad you, you, you set out to do so many podcasts because I feel like as many people as possible should hear your story. Thank you. And do you have, uh, can, can you let the people know how to reach you before we, before we log off? Yes, I am very active on Instagram, Black Rose Coaching. Black is spelled B-L-A-Q-U-E, um, Black Rose Coaching on BlackRoseCoaching.com. Awesome. Once again, thank you so much. Um, and I'm done, Dad. You got anything else you want to say? Okay, well, well, I, I, I want you to leave me out. Normally, I, I, normally, Dad say life is a jungle, and then I say that jungle is hell. But I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say life is a jungle, and you lead us out with that jungle is hell. So, life is a jungle. The jungle is hell. Thank you, Thank you guys. Thank you so much. Life My is little a jungle. Is the jungle is hell. hell. Thank you so much. What the hell? A pleasure. There is hell. Thank you. The jungle is hell. The jungle is hell. The jungle is hell.